hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Exploring the human endeavor. Hi, Kavita Pillay here. I don't know a huge amount about where the English language came from. But I do know that it's a long history with many twists and turns. You might call today's episode a chapter in that history. It's also a chapter in a very different kind of history, that of language revitalization, a language clung to passionately and stubbornly. So now, from the Linguistic Society of America and Quiet Juice, here's an episode reported in 2016 by Patrick Cox. About 1400 years ago, the English established some laws. The local king, he was called Ethelbert. Hmm, Ethelbert. That's like two names, a woman's name and a man's name, Ethelbert. Anyway, Ethelbert oversaw the establishment of these laws, the Kentish laws, as they became known. The Kentish laws are a big deal for several reasons. They were written down on the oldest surviving document in the English language, albeit Old English, which you or I would need to study before understanding it. Also, they were the first laws that we know of that were written in any Germanic language. But I gotta say, I think the Kentish laws are remembered best because they were cool, especially the ones that dealt with compensation for acts of violence, which were listed in some detail. One stab or gouge or chop at a time. Like this one. Feaksfang, which is hair pulling, pulling someone's hair. I think this needs a soundtrack, don't you? Oh yeah. So that old English phrase for hair pulling, feaksfang, it's nearly identical to a phrase in another Germanic language, Frisian. No, this is not a fake news story. Frisian exists, it really does. And here's the word for hair pulling in Old Frisian. Faxfang. Almost exactly the same. Old English and Old Frisian, they shared loads of words. They appear to have been closely related. The Frisians, by the way, they lived across the North Sea from England in what today is the Netherlands, also in parts of northern Germany and southern Denmark. And the Frisians, they wrote down their laws pretty early on too which is super handy for linguists. That's how they've been able to establish this first-cousin relationship between the two languages. Okay, let's get back to some more violence. Piercing someone's nose uh, through the first nostril, through the second nostril, cutting off someone's ear, poking out his eye, blinding him, uh, going through the stomach, cutting off testicles, Oh, beard burning in Frisian ones. I don't know exactly if they're in the Kentish laws uh, as well. Cutting through the wrinkles of the forehead and thus creating a disfigurement, etc., etc. Nasty stuff. The list goes on and on. (laughs) This splendid man is Hun Neidem. He specializes in old Frisian and these legal documents in particular. And he seems to have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, and the metal music... It's a Frisian band. They're singing. Singing? In Frisian. I don't know what about, but it goes well with medieval torture. So, aside from being the language closest among all languages to English, 
Frisian is still spoken. So today, we have six snapshots of Frisian and the people who speak it. And I promise you that by the end of this podcast, you too will love Frisian. It's not all beard burning. Part one. If you listen hard, really hard, you may just hear Frisian in America. Okay, I lucked out here. I happen to have a Frisian-American friend. Not only that, we share the same birthday. The stars are aligned. Anyway, her mother is full-on Frisian. So, at the start of my quest to understand all things Frisian, I had to visit her. She lives in Newton, Massachusetts, and her name is... I would say Micah. Micah Hoving. She came to the U.S. in 1962, age 23. She was born and raised in the Dutch coastal province of Friesland. More than 300,000 people speak Frisian there, most of them village dwellers. Micah's village, it's still there, is called Marum. I think there were probably about 1,600 people living there. Mm. And everybody was a Frisian speaker? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So nobody would ever attempt to speak Dutch with anybody else no. outside of, say, school? No. The school and church was all Dutch, but other than that, it was all Frisian. Micah never learned to write in Frisian. It was just for speaking. And even though church services were usually in Dutch, she asked that her wedding ceremony be in Frisian. The church even gave her a Frisian Bible. Well, I could start at the beginning. In it all begins, keep God the Himmel and the Erde, the Erde leak worlds we're wielding. Micah's Frisian, biblical and the more conversational stuff, it wasn't the slightest bit useful once she arrived in the U.S. For a long time, I was the only one listed at the Widener Library at Harvard as being a Frisian-speaking person. So the Widener Library in Harvard had a... me listed as a Frisian. And the only Frisian speaker in Massachusetts, in New England? and Yeah, I was the only one. So what about Dutch, I asked Micah, her second language, the one she was educated in? I am just not that comfortable in it. Just not comfortable speaking Dutch. I mean, I can do it if I have to. Interacting with other Dutch people here in the U.S., that's not especially comfortable for Micah either. There are Dutch people here. There are Dutch groups of people and pretty snobbies. One time she recalls being invited to some local Dutch-American event, an academic society. Oh, what a bunch of snobs. <laughs> and they were just, to me, they were like typical Dutch people because Dutch people can really be sort of stuck up. Okay, you get the picture. Frisians don't like being looked down upon by other Dutch people. And the two languages, they're both assigned roles in this dynamic. Which brings me to part two. Part two. Is the Frisian language a real language or just a dialect of something else, Dutch or English or German. So a couple of days after talking with Micah, I flew to Amsterdam. Friesland is about two hours north on the train, but I made a little detour first. I went to see Gaston Doran. He's the star of a previous podcast we did. He speaks a whole bunch of languages, writes about them too. So, of course, I wanted to know what he, a Dutch speaker who also speaks his own local dialect, but not Frisian, I wanted to know what he thought about the Frisians. He didn't hold back. In a Dutch way of not holding back. I get a bit tired sometimes by Frisians going on about how special their language is. So wait a minute. Frisian is nothing to write home about? It's just the Frisians talk a good game? Yes, Gaston told me. The other smaller languages of the Netherlands, he said, they don't get the same props. The 
typical wording that you will hear is that Frisian is a language, whereas the other regional lingos are mere dialects. That is just not true. Ooh, dear. There's a theme here. Frisians and other Dutch people, they don't seem to like each other that much. For one reason or another, Frisian does enjoy a higher status in the Netherlands. It's an official language. The other languages, languages, dialects, you pick your poison, they're not official. So what is it about the Frisians? Stubbornness. That's what a lot of people think. Frisians are so stubborn, they insist on speaking this old dialect and calling it a language. Well, I had to ask some Frisians about this right away as soon as I got to Friesland. And I found some in a school at a village. We sat in a room, a group of us, teachers and students. And then the Frisian teacher, Anna Maria Bloom, she told me what she thought of the Dutch and their attitudes. I think they need to make an effort to get to know the Frisian people and the Frisian language because we're not stubborn at all. Do you think we're stubborn? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think I'm going to (laughs) say? Because a lot of people also say we thought Frisian people are very stubborn, but you really are going for what you want and for what you believe in. And I think we are really honest and real. I think that is what we are instead of being stubborn. Maybe. But I tell you something else Frisians are. They're savvy. This teacher, Anna Maria, she's quite the language activist. You'll see her on local Frisian language TV a lot, talking up the language and the culture. And when I visited her school, she made sure the local news media knew about it. There were reports in the local papers. I was on the radio, even TV. Leerlingen van het Bogerman in Kouden witten het beter. Maar voor journalist Patrick Cox van BBC America... World famous in Friesland even if I don't work for BBC America. My branding people will speak to your branding people. And if that wasn't enough, Anna Maria also plied me with delicious local pastries. So this is from our bakery here in Kouden, the best bakery. Thank you so much. You have to try this. But not anything like that big, okay, just like a small... (laughs) More from Anna Maria and her students later. Last thing, though, from language writer Gaston Doran, because I don't want you to think that he's all down on Frisian. He told me this too. I do remember that when I f- was on the train to Friesland years ago, I saw all these kids enter the train and I heard them talk to each other and I wasn't paying much attention. And I thought, what are these? Are these Danes or Swedes? Or... And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm heading for Friesland. This must be Frisian. And I didn't understand the word. Part three. How did Frisian end up as an official language? Of course, in its heyday 1,400 years ago, Frisian didn't have official status. People just spoke it. And because the Frisians were fantastically successful at buying and selling stuff, they became rich. And other people wanted a bit of the action. So they started speaking Frisian too. Then, and this is a horribly shortened version of history that doesn't even mention the Vikings, except for just then, along came the Dutch. They were getting rich themselves. But they didn't want to speak Frisian, they wanted to speak Dutch. School was in Dutch, that was the language of instruction. In the large towns in Friesland, people mainly spoke Dutch. Frisian was pushed into the villages, the farms, the homes. 
and it stayed there, stubbornly no doubt, for centuries. Until the 19th century. That was when a lot of things changed all across Europe. In Germany, the Brothers Grimm, you know them, right? They collected folk tales and wrote them down. And they wrote the way people speak, and so transformed the German language. Well, the same thing happened in Friesland. They had their own Brothers Grimm. They weren't called Grimm, though. And actually, they weren't brothers. It was just one guy. He was called Just Hiddes Halbatsma. Wow, I murdered that pronunciation. And he wrote Frisian much more like the way it was spoken. It was a big inspiration for Frisians who wanted more respect for their language, which is what led to Clubbing Friday. I know, that's what I thought when I heard Clubbing Friday. But no, it's not. Back to Hun Nydam. Yes, the hair-pulling man. Hun is a scholar with an institution that researches all things Frisian. It's called the Frisian Academy. He told me about a key moment for Frisian a few decades ago. It was to do with the law courts. Back then, if you were charged with an offense, you had to defend yourself in Dutch. And this led to a famous case in the 1950s where a sort of mini-revolution started because a milkman had written milk and churned milk in Frisian on his his milk containers and he was he was brought to court for this and tried for it and then uh, a few journalists um, made this into a big thing and then Frisians well a small group revolted on the square here uh, before the court and this is called Kneppelfreit, uh, clubbing Friday, because the police had to to to, ta- to make a charge, had to charge and and drove the people apart. So because of the clubs, the 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 the, um, the police used, it's called Kneppelfreit. But this was a, a turning point because after this moment, things changed for the better and Frisian language got more rights. So you can now use Frisian in court, and you can use Frisian in official communication to the province, etc, etc. There were Frisian language schools established after that, Frisian radio and TV, all with support from the Dutch national government. It seems like these rights came quite easily, much more so than, say, Welsh, which has had similar legal and civil rights battles, but they went on for decades. So there wasn't a sustained Frisian civil rights movement. And perhaps because of that, other Dutch people sometimes forgot about Frisian. You know, it's that heavy dialect they talk up north. Well, Lutz Jacobi, she was not going to stand for that. She's a politician, a member of the Dutch parliament from Friesland. And she came up with a novel way of reminding the Dutch public about the Frisian language. The occasion was the swearing-in of the new King of the Netherlands, Willem Alexander. This was in 2013. As part of the ceremony, members of Parliament had to pledge loyalty to the new monarch. Machiel de Graaf. Jacobi did a little research and found out that you didn't need to state your pledge in Dutch. You could say it in your native tongue. So she rounded up a few Frisian-speaking MPs. 
I asked all the other ones who can speak uh, Frisian language, I said, you do it all together, we do it all together now, because we organize so many Frisian languages, you should use, today is the day to use. And they said, no, no, I don't want to, no, no, please not. And then I said, I'm, I'm proud Frisian. So I stand up, hand on my heart. Jacobi. Dat ontjeet ik. Dat uh, ontjeet ik. In Frisian is, I promise. And the king was like, Ontjetik, what is that? And then he was smiling. So, yeah, okay, Frisian do always separate. The king may have smiled, but Jacobi knew it was provocative. I heard that on the broadcast there was a immediately a kind of discussion. Is it allowed? And why should you do that? And that kind of things. Yeah, Dutch people who don't live here, they always think, oh, it's a kind of accent different. There's only one language, it's Dutch. No, it's not true. Oh, we're back here again. Time to find out more about the language itself. Part four. What is Frisian? And why does it sound so similar to Dutch? So at the beginning of the podcast, there was this. You're welcome. And there was that linguistic connection in those early laws in Old English and Old Frisian. Similar words. But is that it? I mean, lots of languages have words in common. For example, Frisian and Dutch. I asked Han Neidem of the Frisian Academy about grammar. Are there grammatical patterns that Frisian has in common with English and not with Dutch? Yes, he said. Quite a few. For example. The Dutch uses zich for a reflexive form. To wash oneself. That's zich wassen in Dutch. But in Frisian, as well as in English, in the older forms, you use him. Hij wasket him. He washes himself. There you have the him. He washes himself. There are a few other things, but you can't hear them in modern English because it changed so much. But both English and Frisian developed a common form for all plural verbs. So, we go, you go, they go. This developed into an ath ending, uh, both in Old English and in Frisian. Whereas the German and Dutch had different endings for we, uh, you, and they. Wow, that was a major geek out. But I get it. In those early days, English and Frisian took certain similar grammatical pathways, whereas other related languages like Dutch and German went in different directions. So why this connection between Frisian and English? Many researchers have tried to figure this out. Even Eddie Izzard did. Have you seen his video on Frisian and English? It's on YouTube. It's very funny. Check it out. The thing is, we don't really know. We do know that post-Roman times, there were movements of people, Angles, Saxons, and Jews, from what is today northern Germany and Denmark. They went eastward to Friesland, to England. In any case, it seems likely that Frisian and English grew out of the same language. Later, history happened. England was invaded by the Vikings, who left behind some old Norse words, and then there was 1066. The Normans occupied England, and French occupied English. Friesland was occupied by the Dutch, and so Frisian started sounding more and more Dutch. That's still going on. My senior colleagues who were born here in Friesland didn't speak, some of them didn't speak Dutch 
until they went to school, when they were the age of seven or something like that. They had to learn Dutch and they really had trouble in that first period. That's a completely different situation from now. Now every Frisian child grows up bilingually at the same time. And you can tell, you can hear that the sound of Frisian is also changing towards Dutch. And if you listen to recordings of Frisian from the early 20th century, it sounds completely different. From It has a different sound system from Dutch. And now, to my ears, young Frisian speakers are speaking Frisian with Dutch sound in their heads. Part 5. Does anyone else, apart from Frisians, speak Frisian? Uh, well, my first name is Ira or Irina, and last name is Yudkovskaya. That doesn't sound so Frisian. There are some people who call me our Frisian Russian. Ira Yudkovskaya moved to the Netherlands age 15. Her family arrived from the Soviet Union as Jewish refugees. At school, Ira studied Dutch. Later at theater school, one of her professors told her he was a native Frisian speaker. And I was surprised because I never heard about it and I was just happy that I learned Dutch. <laughs> so I was not thinking about learning another language. I also didn't know much about it. Until she took a job as artistic director of Friesland's Frisian language theater company. I think the experience in Friesland made me think different about languages. Because I'm, I'm from Moscow, so from the big city. Before I went to Friesland, I had no idea about what it can mean to people or to the audience, so it's changed my world. It's a right of people to experience art in their language. So start and finish is time to this is a play that Ira directed. The subject is about as Frisian as, well, hair-pulling. Once every 20 or 30 years, when the winter's cold enough, there's an epic speed-skating race in Friesland along a network of canals. You may have heard of it. It's called the Eleven Cities Tour. It's almost 200 kilometers long. And if any part of the circuit isn't frozen, the race is cancelled. The last time it was run was 20 winters ago. So we made performance about it, but not about how fun it is and how people eat soup together, but about what what happens in someone's mind and body when you go and skate 200 kilometers. And it took 12 hours, the performance. So it started at 6 o'clock in the morning, in the winter, outside. And a lot of people came to see it, and it was really quite an experience for ourselves and for the audience. So it was about experiencing yourself, uh, your boundaries, and your environment. And the sound of the wind was very important in it. It was one of the most important players in the, in the play. Skating isn't just a Frisian obsession. Most Dutch people love it too. So I asked Ira which language was the play performed in. It was in both languages because people came even from south of Netherlands. So it was mixed. Ik ga één utreden. Ik ga twee utreden. So mixed, she says, that sometimes you couldn't decide which language the actors were speaking. There were scenes across the entire race circuit. The performance lasted 12 hours. Audience members were bussed from one scene to the next and given headphones. So it was almost like they were getting inside the heads of the skaters. 
Leven is groot en moeilijk. People like to hear Frisian, because it's a very beautiful language to, to hear. Dijken kunnen breken, maar nu is het schaatsen. And so, what about the answer to the question I asked a few minutes ago? Does anyone else speak Frisian? I suppose the answer's not many. Ira is one of a few exceptions. Friesland doesn't attract many immigrants or refugees, at least compared to, say, Amsterdam. And of those who do come to Friesland, they tend to settle not in the Frisian-speaking villages, but in the larger towns where most people speak Dutch. Frisian isn't alone here. All, quote, small minority languages have similar problems attracting outsiders. Some don't even try to be welcoming. They like to keep the language secret for one reason or another. Others are more open, hopeful that people like Ira will learn the language and settle there. Part six, the final part. Frisian has another problem, and maybe a solution. The problem's this. Most people don't write in Frisian. It's been that way for hundreds of years, ever since the Dutch imposed their language on schools. And so Frisian is mainly a spoken language. It's why people dismiss it as a dialect. But the Frisians think they have a solution. Trilingual schools. We're back at the school where they plied me with pastries. That's not the only reason we're back. This is one of scores of elementary and middle schools that teach in three languages, Dutch, English, and Frisian. They teach math and science in Dutch, geography and music in English, and history and sports in Frisian. Anna Maria, the Frisian teacher of this class and the provider of pastries, she's part of a new generation of Frisian adults who read and write in Frisian. When I was 15, I did an exam in Frisian language, and then I went to do the Frisian language teacher study, and now I'm doing my master. So I really chose to do everything what I do in Frisian now. In this seventh grade class, Anna Maria and her students are discussing topics for a 700-word essay she set them. It's quite a challenge for these kids because written and spoken Frisian are so different. It's almost like learning two languages. Teachers have to decide which version of the language is acceptable in essay form. Should they insist on the stilted, official version of the written language or allow something closer to how these kids speak in the playground? Listen to these two students, Ninka Koy and Fadao de Vries. I feel comfortable when I speak Frisian, but when I write Frisian, it contains a lot of uh, mistakes. <laughs> I like the Frisian writing, but it's with a lot of uh, mistakes. It doesn't matter, but I always uh, love to write in Frisian. A lot of the students say similar things, that, okay, they make errors, but they want to keep at it. A couple of the students tell me they're sort of weirded out at the very idea of being able to write in Frisian. But then they turn around and say how excited they are by that too, because it's their mother tongue, the language they can best express their thoughts in. Essay writing is one thing. Texting is something else. It's single-sentence messages written on the fly. It's almost like you're speaking. Many of the kids here text and use social media in Frisian, and researchers have noticed. 
The Frisian Academy recently surveyed 2,000 young people. They found that very few of them have confidence in their writing skills. Fewer than 15% said their written Frisian was good. But despite that, more than half of them chose Frisian when it came to messaging friends or posting updates on Facebook or Twitter. We think that social media have introduced the Frisian language into the written domain, actually. That's what it looks like. This is Lisbeth Jongblut, who authored the study. And it's not uh, the standard Frisian, but it's used now by a much bigger group than before. I mean, that sounds like a great benefit. They're using the language, they're experimenting to, to agree with the language in a way that they just didn't do before. Yes, and I think what you see now is that in Friesland uh, there's getting more and more education in the Friesian language. So probably in 10 or 20 years it will be very normal to use Friesian also in formal writing. And everybody also knows how to do this. So it sounds like the social media came at a very good time for the Friesian language. Along comes social media and gives people a, a platform to practice their skills, even though they may not think of it as practicing their skills. <laughs> yeah, I think... What you see is the children, they look at each other's writing. Oh, how should I write this? How should I write that? And they look at each other and, yeah, tend to copy from each other. Right, and it may also change what standard Frisian is eventually. It's a very interesting question, yes. I'm quite active on Facebook, and when people uh, make comments, but it's, it's not correct, I never correct them, never. This is the last person I spoke to for this podcast, Willem Skorstra. He writes novels in Frisian. His Frisian vocabulary, and I'm told his ability to express himself, is about as expansive as it gets. But that doesn't mean he thinks ungrammatical, misspelled Facebook posts are a bad thing. Skorstra's son, by the way, is in that metal band. It's the band's signature, almost, that they sing in Frisian. They didn't at the start. They used English, like everyone does. But uh, after two, three years, they switched to Frisian. Very nice. The language is changing. And, and that's the thing, you can't stop it, that's just like nature, so to say. It's developing itself, it's, 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 it's a living thing. In 100 years or 200 years, our language will be very different. But I think it still will be there. I think we will be fine. I really do. Author Willem Skorstra links to his work and to his son's band, which I won't try pronouncing, are at subtitlepod.com. You can also find a transcript of this episode there. A big thank you to Ono Falconer. He's a journalist with the Frisian Language News Service. A few months after I reported this, Ono sent me a report by the Council of Europe, which kind of oversees language policies in the European Union. It was about the Netherlands, and it was quite sharply worded. It urged the Dutch government to do more to support Frisian and other smaller languages. More multilingual schools, more media. If you liked what you heard today, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The best way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. We're at Lingopod. 
Thanks to the World Radio Show, still the only program on public radio that's 100% international news and culture. Also to Tina Toby, who sound designed this episode, and to our friends at the Hub and Spoke Podcast Collective, of which Subtitle is a member. You can't go wrong with any of the podcasts you'll find there. Just one example is The Briny, which tells stories about the sea, our love for it, our fear for it, and many other things too. There's a recent episode I just love about a woman who tries to overcome anxiety about shark attacks by competing in an ocean swim. That's actually just the start of the story. The Briny, hosted by Matt Frassica. Find out more about The Briny and all the Hub and Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.